J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Jay Gurudev, welcome to the Vedic Worldview. My name is Tom Knowles. Today we will hear Inside the Mind of a Master. It is an interview of me held by Gary Garrow. The question and answer with Gary Garrow is the format. It was recorded in July of 2016 in Sydney, Australia. Gary is one of the world's foremost meditation teachers. Jay Gurudev. All right. Nice outfit. <laughs> Cowboys and Indians. <laughs> I thought a nice way for us to start would be a little song. Should we sing? Yes. What would you like to sing? Sahana Sahana Vavatu Sahano Punaktu Sahaviryam Karavavahai Tejasvinavatitamastu Mavidvishavahai Jai Gurudev Let us be together, let us eat together That means have shared experience let us be vital together. Let us radiate the light of life and truth. Never shall we denounce anyone. Never entertain negativity. It's a very good thing to say. So I don't think you've ever done this before. <laughs> and, not, um, not in this format. Yeah. I think anyone who's come and seen you speak or attended any of your lectures knows that you're quite generous with your speech. And, you know, they ask you the time, you tell them how to build a watch, and then probably tell them that time's irrelevant, you know, it's just a mental construct, and on and on it goes. So I just have to remind you, this is meant to be an interview. Good, 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 good. good. Uh-huh. Question, answer, question, answer. And so I'll just remind you the hand signal, which is... <laughs> So I guess the most important thing for me is to really start to lay a little bit of kind of uh, framework around what we're doing this evening. And the night was, is called Inside the Mind of a Master. So some of us know what that means, and some of us would like to know what that means. So what, how would one define what a master is, and what is one mastering? And we'll get into how that forms, but to give us some little definition to begin with. No one's really a master unless they have someone listening to them. Somebody who's sitting inside of a cave somewhere, they might be 
and a lot of peace. They might have wonderful experiences, but if they haven't found a way yet of making their experience relevant socially, they're not a master. Bob Dylan had beautiful love affairs Mm -hmm. and songs appeared in his head and poetry, but he wasn't a master until he decided to let us all, all hear his songs. And he didn't need to do that from his own perspective, but he made it relevant socially so we can call him a master in his own right. Anyone who can take a deep personal experience and make it relevant Mm -hmm. to others, not just share it. Sharing is not enough. There has to be the capability to trigger an experience in another. That's mastery. And what's a Vedic master? (laughs) Someone who can trigger the experience of the Veda Mm -hmm. in someone. And what's the experience of the Veda? Life in complete attunement with nature to such an extent that you never wonder anything again. I wonder about this, I wonder about that. That's gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to get into that. Good. But if um, someone is a master, one must assume that they were an apprentice sometime. So I thought for those who don't know your story, we'll have a little bit of a snapshot of that. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and life as little Tommy and, you know, where you sat in the pecking order of your family and give us a little bit of an insight into that. I was um, the fair-haired boy, literally and figuratively, of uh, two masters. My grandfather was a famous uh, state senator from Arizona who was a legislator who was a friend of education and uh, he had the same name as me Mm. and his son, my father was a famous warrior poet general uh, who was amongst other things the heir attaché to uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy and those two men really um, showed me what it meant to be a man. Mm. And by the time I was a teenager, I met another great master, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, in the United States on the East Coast. He taught me to meditate, and within a very short time, I was in training with him to become a master of meditation. Mm. And so uh, that went on over the next more than 25 years. And what got you on the spiritual path in the beginning? Because I know that your father was a general in the war, in the military, and your mother was very devoted to a Christian faith, so I hear. And you didn't choose that path. Either of those paths, you kind of defied, I guess, family tradition and went the way of peace, inner peace. Yeah, I and, would and say. Vedic, yeah, Vedic I would philosophy. say that defy was would be too strong a word. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, your dad encouraged you to an extent, didn't he? He he uh, uh, he'd given up on the idea of me following in his footsteps by the time I was about fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, my mother, at the age of 88 today, still hasn't given up on the idea of me being Billy Graham. (laughs) Either that or a real estate agent. (laughs) And so I'm interested in what was happening inside you as a young 14-year-old boy. Were you doing a lot of soul-searching? Was it just unquestionable for you that your, your kind of path was not conventional you did you go seeking spirituality or did you just kind of did the path find you i had a uh, a very life threatening uh experience when i was hit by a speeding ambulance at the age of 9 uh, in the ambulance uh, was an apprentice driver with the sun in his eyes And the main driver was in the back of the speeding ambulance trying to resuscitate a woman who was apparently having a heart attack. Mm. And the apprentice hit me doing about, uh, oh, probably 80 kilometers an hour. Um, I spent a year in a, a military hospital on my own because my family were in Southeast Asia. This all happened in the United States, but... It's a long story, but my my mother ended up having to go to Southeast Asia to join my father there. And I grew up for that year in an army hospital uh, in a ward with nine other beds filled with nine other uh, patients, all of whom were war casualties. I was the only child in the hospital. And uh, when the nurses would come in to measure our blood pressure... um, the soldiers would all comment on, you know, what it was they hoped they could do with a nurse one day. So I was getting a real earful all the time. And there was one television in the ward of ten beds, and they didn't watch cartoons. They watched variety shows, and they watched the news. So by the time I got out of there and could walk again, um, I joined my family in Southeast Asia. We, we went to Saigon. And uh, the first thing that happened within a week, my father, who was greeting me after having not seen me for 14 days or so, took me to a restaurant. While we were standing in the restaurant uh, waiting for a seat, uh, a young man came in and accosted a businessman sitting at a table. And the businessman was very well-dressed, Vietnamese businessman. They began to argue, and the young man pulled out a forty-five and held it up to his chest and pulled the trigger and killed him right on the spot. And my father looked at me and said, we're going out through the kitchen door, um, which we did. Um, That was the kind of environment I was raised in for the next few years. Um, We lived in war zones. That's the way the U.S. did things in those days. Mm. The top brass, they had to keep on tour for as long as they could, so they would move the family to the war zones. And the number of times I saw, um, you know, killing and dead bodies lying around and heads blown apart and things like that. It was just, you know, what you saw every day. And there came a a point where, you know, I was allowed to walk off to the school, but I always had to pass a Buddhist temple. And in the midst of all of this chaos, it was fascinating to see um, these Buddhist monks going in and out of a temple with shaved heads and incense burning everywhere. And I wasn't really allowed to go in those temples mm. because my mother was in charge of religion in our family. And it wasn't Christian. Um, yeah, it wasn't Christian. Mm. 
But uh, that was that experience, and and it was uh, the, that was the crucible for my beginning to have a deep fascination. There's another part of the story, but I better be quiet and let you ask me the question. <laughs> Tell us the other part of the story. <laughs> uh, we spent some time um, in Southeast Asia a few years, and when I was 16, my father was uh, stationed at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and one day, um, you know, I was a surfer. Uh, I'd become a surfer when we lived in Hawaii for a short spell. Surfer magazine would arrive every month. It was always terribly exciting. And uh, there in Washington, perhaps in the middle of winter, if I, as I remember it, as I opened the magazine, there was a, an article uh, with photographs of what I now know to be surfers sitting in very bad yoga positions in wetsuits on a beach. Um, but the heading was Yoga. And then the byline, little line said, many top surfers are using this ancient Indian culture to improve their performance. And so I went to my mother, who was Wikipedia in those days, and I said, um, what's this word? And I pointed out that Y-O-G-A because it was like bells were ringing in my head when I saw that word. And she said, you know, Hungarians uh, get milk and they heat it overnight and they put culture in it and it turns into this thing. I said, I, I, I don't think that's what they're talking about here. She said, uh, well, go to the library. So I went to the library and this was a public library in Washington, D.C. and I didn't know the difference between the, the author files and the subject files. So I went over to the little file and pulled the drawer out and was looking up Y-O-G-A, and I got Yogananda, mm. Autobiography of a Yogi, author. Went and found the book. I saw that face on the cover of that book. Those of you who've seen it, you know what I mean. I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. Um, you know, a clean-shaven face with long hair and those eyes staring at me from the cover of the book. So I took that home and didn't come out of my room for the next three days, reading that book from cover to cover. And that was my starting point. Um, I thought, this is it. Um, and shortly after that, I went and I was initiated in the Yogananda Method, which was available in Washington, D.C. There was a, a white woman named Sri Dayamata, who wore a sari. Mm. And uh, she was there, and they had a big center in Washington. So I got initiated in that method. And shortly after that, some of those people said, there's a man who's known as the beacon light of the Himalaya, and he's coming to lecture in Maine. And Maine's a bit north from Washington. There's a bunch of us going. Would you like to come? Off I went. That's where I met Maharishi. Mm. And what happened when you first met him? I was kind of naughty. Um, I saw him there. I walked in. He was talking. It was July. I now know that it was Guru Purnima. Um, so all those decades ago. Um, and he, had, he did a puja, as we all did last Thursday night. 
And then it was announced people who would like to come and learn advanced techniques um, should file up and see him one at a time, and you'll receive your advanced technique. And I thought, well, I'm a meditator. I do this Kriya Yoga thing. So even though my friends were all holding back, I, my Yogananda friends, I just boldly walked up there, and he said, what is your mantra? And I said, Om. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. And he started saying another word to me. And uh, that was my initiation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and... You know, because the, the Yogananda book that you mentioned, that did it all for me too. That was the first book that I read, mm. and it really touched my heart, kind of made it explode. And this deep yearning was stimulated to really become one with, you know, what, that which we are ultimately. And so it's interesting, my journey began in the same way. But I think only really because he was so generous mm. in that book in really unveiling his personal experience. Yeah. And I know you've personally been kind of reluctant to do that. And I know Maharishi would never advise sharing experiences. And I think part of that was a mode of protection, like we don't want to bewilder people. But I think if we don't do that, then people just get stuck in just this reality that we're, you know, seeing society in, which is there's no damn hope. You know, there's what else is there in life? Yeah. And so I think we have to come to the to the theme now of you know personal realization yeah. enlightenment because i've even actually heard you on this stage say um you know that human beings suffer from chronic brain failure please <laughs> say it several times and so then one can assume that the opposite of that is enlightenment and i wondered if you would share a little bit about you know your personal process of, of awakening to self was it like the rising of the sun, going from deep darkness slowly, slowly to, to full light? Or was it more like Eckhart's experience, which was a switch just turned on? I think Eckhart, uh, as he describes it, had the switch turned on and it stayed on. Mm. Uh, my switch turned on, but it didn't stay on. Mm. It went off and on. And my first experience of it was um, having... I. I was initiated, as I said, by Maharishi. I practiced regularly for a while. And then I got a little, you know, cocky and thought, well, you know, I know all about this stuff. And, you know, I'm re I read Yogananda's mm -hmm. book, after all. And, um, yeah, I was a bit of an irregular practitioner. And then one day I went into uh, the meditation center can't remember exactly where it was, and I met an elderly woman who uh, said that she could do a checking. And for those of you who've learned Vedic meditation, you know there's a thing that you can go and sit with a teacher and they'll mm -hmm. take you through some steps. And I went through those steps with her, and uh, she said, you know, I'm going to leave the room for a few minutes, and left me to meditate. What I'd learned in the process of uh, hearing her go through it with me was that I'd been straining. I'd been using a lot of effort. I'd also been mood making a lot while I was meditating. You know, like sitting around making all kinds of moods and, you know, my mantra's a beautiful goddess and now I'm, you know, I'm not going to think all the everyday thoughts. I'm going to think all the cosmic thoughts and 
occasionally in the middle of my meditation because I knew that Yogananda was a great devotee of Krishna. So I'd be, you know, I'd be in the middle of my meditation going, Krishna, Krishna. And then I thought, oh, the Hare Krishnas do Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. <laughs> and then I'd come back to my mantra that Maharishi gave me. And I was doing all kinds of stuff that wasn't necessary. And she'd taken me just through the very stripped down method. And she left the room and said, you know, I'll be back soon. And I sat and meditated on my own. And while I was sitting there, the size of my head suddenly started getting larger. And my head got larger and larger and larger. And I can remember sitting and thinking, what's this? My heart began pounding, but my head just kept getting larger and larger. And then eventually it was like room size large. And then my body started getting larger and larger and larger. And I thought, I, I can't even understand what this is. This is just amazing. And there I was, you know, sort of all inflated to about the size of the room when she came back in. And I thought, no, no, don't say anything. And she said, <laughs> all right, let's take a few minutes and then open our eyes slowly. And it was a bit like someone, you know, letting the air out of the balloon. Mm. And she asked me all the standard questions, but I was so utterly dazzled by that experience that um, I couldn't even remember what she said to me, except that I realized that whatever she told me to do, which was to do a lot less than what I'd been doing mm -hmm. in terms of effort and all that, um, it was possibly going to recreate that experience. Uh, uh, probably the next time I experienced that, was when I was uh, meditating in a room uh, in teacher training with Maharishi and with a group of other people, my head kind of went large again. And I thought, all right, this is repeatable. And um, there were other experiences that I had where walking along the street, um, actually right here in Edgecliff Road, just up there in Sydney, later part of the story. Um, I had my hands in my pocket on a cold July night. The wind was blowing and all that. I was walking away from a group meditation about to catch the 389 bus to Central to go back to my home in Cronulla, where I lived at the time. And um, while I was walking, I felt like that expansion thing had started happening again. And yet I was walking. I wasn't sitting still. And I must have had a smile, a goofy smile on my face from ear to ear when I went and got on that bus. It lasted all the way to Eddy Avenue <laughs> from Hedgecliff. And um, those were the dawning days of what I now would call, if somebody described that to me, the dawning days of cosmic consciousness, where uh, the mind is no longer dependent solely on meditation for that experience. I mean, meditation was the foundation for creating it, but the mind is beginning to learn how to do it outside the context of meditation. And the it is that uh, settling down to that deepest possible state, but being able simultaneously and without stopping anything, moving around, speaking, moving, buying a bus ticket, all those things, 
in that state. Uh, the contrast of that state, uh, as it kept coming back and coming back, it began to normalize. And I think what happened was it just became what normality was. And so you could say it went away, but apparently it didn't because I would notice that when very demanding moments came, if I was with a group of people who were all experiencing the same demand, I felt remarkably calm and they didn't look calm at all. There was one time in particular on, a, on an airplane going into Athens, Greece, and the airplane hit turbulence and things were really wild. It was bouncing up and down wildly at summertime. And it bounced once so hard that the masks all came down. It wasn't intentional. They just bounced down. And the captain immediately said, don't worry, don't put on the masks. Everything's fine. It's just some turbulence, you know. But you know how Greeks are. Um, and the Greeks in the airplane all got really excited uh, in not a good way. And they were all getting their masks on anyway. And then one of them began shouting, you know, we're all going to die. And I was looking back like, no, we're not. I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. And then somebody else jumped up and he said, get your shoes off, get your shoes off. Write a message to your family on your shoe. They always find the shoes. <laughs> and there were all these Greek people with masks on writing messages on their shoes. <laughs> The plane was bouncing around, and the man who was sitting next to me said through his mask in a very loud voice, aren't you going to take off your shoe and write a message? And I said, no, uh, because we're going to land in a few minutes, and I don't want to write on my shoes. And, and uh, he said to me, you look so calm, you, you look so calm. And I said, it's all right, just hold my hand. Everything's going to be fine. And, you know, he bent over into the crash position, which we weren't even asked to do. <laughs> and he was madly writing something. might have something. taken the hold the hand thing a little bit the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. And he was madly writing something on another, on one of his shoes. And finally the plane landed and everybody applauded and all that. And then he jumped up and he shouted to the whole plane, he saved us, pointing at me. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> but that was a good example of I, I couldn't be convinced to panic. And I, I can't say that I was feeling all that expansion, but I think somehow the expanded state had become and has become normal. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if uh, I could take young Tommy and, you know, insert whatever consciousness state I'm in right now, it feels totally normal to me. But to take this and put it in him, mm. he'd probably think he was on acid or something. You know, mm. I never took any drugs. I, I grew up in the '60s. Uh, everybody was smoking weed and taking drugs and drinking and all those things, LSD and everything. I missed out on all that. <laughs> I, I haven't had a, haven't had a drink yet. Mm. I'm, I'm uh, yet. Could start any day now. 
So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, that, that meeting with Maharishi and getting to know him and really coming under his care because Maharishi's commented that if you come under the care of a great master, your spiritual growth, you know, is, is just, you know, hundredfold. And he said, without a without a master, one tends to go around in circles, you know, yeah. just caught on that wheel of samsara. Mm. So I know there are very few people, you know, teachers who have arrived there themselves, and they declare, "Hey, you don't need a guru." Mm. But that seems to be an anomaly almost within the Vedic tradition. They acknowledge that we need teachers, yeah. we need these these, you know, these spiritual luminaries to to guide the way. So Yogananda. He said that his master, Sri Yukteswaji, would really work on him to break down his ego psychically yeah. from a distance, even you know, when they weren't in proximity to one another, and certainly when they were, and often there was not much speech, but there was this energetic work happening. Yeah. Was, was Maharishi doing things like that to you? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-hmm. He trained me, sent me off to teach. I came back here. I taught for a while. He, he said, don't come back until you've taught 500 people. I went to Sydney University and started a student meditation society, and also at Kensington. Those were the only two unis back in the 70s. And uh, I taught 500 people in a very short time. And then I flew back to where he was. Then he'd moved from India to Europe. He was tired of Westerners coming to the little ashram in India and uh, getting sick and, you know, having the deli belly and all that. And Mm. besides that, the applications for teacher training, we're now getting up to 2,000 people mm. and more at a time. And he would do that once a year, train teachers for 12 weeks. And when he was training teachers, existing teachers were expected to come, join where he was, listen to him training the new teachers, but also he would have special meetings for existing teachers late in the night. When he saw me, he said, what are you doing here so fast? I said, I taught 500 people. I think it was probably seven months or something. And uh, he said, would there be any evidence that these 500 have been taught? And I said, I knew you would ask me that. I brought all their forms here in my suitcase. I had this suitcase with 503 forms in it Mm. that people had signed to apply to learn to meditate. I said, would you like me to go through them and count them for you? He goes, no, 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 that's all right. Um, So... You know, you would sit and listen to him. People would ask him questions. Uh, the agenda was always whatever question you asked him. Sometimes people would ask him questions that you'd think would be very interesting. Like they'd say, I want you to talk about kundalini or chakras or something. And he'd say, ask me something else. You know, and, uh, and then, you know, he would answer whatever question he wanted. And sometimes the answers were three hours. Anyway, years went by. Uh, I was going back and forth from Australia to Europe because that's where he was every year. One year, I, um, in probably 1975, uh, Maharishi, I, I got into that privileged inner circle. How I got into it, I, he was sitting in front of five, 600 people one night he was listening to somebody else giving a lecture. Someone was talking about some subject to do with physics or something like that. And I just noticed his eyes go like this. And that's all. And I was like, 
15 rows back. And I thought, he wants something. And I jumped up from my seat, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, made my way out to the aisle, walked down the aisle right up to the dais where he was sitting. And his minders, all the, you know, the poobahs of meditation, were all in the front. But I got right past them and went right up on the stage. And I leaned up to him and I said, Maharishi, is there anything you want? And he looked at me and he said, open the windows, that window, that window. And so I went and opened the windows. And then I started making my way back to my seat. But just before I went and excuse me, excuse me again, I turned and looked at him and he went like this with his head. I came back up. And he said, and that one too for cross-ventilation? <laughs> so I went and opened that one too. And then, you know, and then he goes, and sit there. And he was pointing at the seat that was occupied by the young man who was his personal assistant and secretary. He said, sit there. And he looked at the guy who was his personal assistant and went, Fired him. And I went and sat there. Yeah. And then that guy, who everybody's heard of, well, you've heard of him if you're a certain age, was Johnny Gray. Johnny uh, has become Dr. John Gray, the man who wrote all those books, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus books. But back then he was just Johnny. And uh, Johnny took this all very well. And about 10 minutes into my sitting in his chair, Johnny looked up at me and he said, excuse me, do you think it's time for him to have his water yet? And I thought, wow, I'm in. <laughs> I said, not just yet. <laughs> Still not thirsty. I'll let you know. But I think you're, you're revealing one of the secrets here, I think, of that, you know, that deep relationship that exists between... Your water's just there, by the way. Um, between the, the, the guru and the student, or the shisha. Because as some, some people would understand, Maharishi has said he, he obtained his level of consciousness through simply adjusting his awareness to that of his master. And so what you were doing there was kind of in some way tuning into Maharishi's thoughts or needs, and he picked up on it and you were graduated because of that. So how important is that act of really attuning oneself to the consciousness of the guru? Oh, it's, uh, it's pivotal. It's crucial. Uh, and, you know, the, and when you think you have it, the guru always tests you. In what ways? Let's fast forward for a year, because that night, for the first time when Maharishi got up and everybody stood, instead of me walking off to my room, I followed him and followed him back to his room. And then there were ten people in that room, and Maharishi hardly slept. He would lie down on a sofa for two hours each night. And uh, usually around 2 a.m. he'd stretch out. And he expected people to stay in the room. You had to turn the lights down. And if there was anything to read you had to, that he wanted you to read to him or take notes while he was lying there, because he'd talk all the time while he was lying there, you had to have a little flashlight and you know, write with that because he didn't want bright lights on him. And um, then, you know, if 
as he was reclining, he would say, ask, 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 which meant ask a question. And then you'd ask a question, he'd start answering, and then he'd begin to doze. And then you'd hear, and all that and everything. But then if anybody ever started to get up to go out, as I did that night, my first night in this experience, where are you going? I said, oh, I was just going to my room to rest. No, you rest here. I said, oh, all right. Lay down on the floor. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. He started getting very commanding. And let's fast forward another year or so. There was a thing that happened every month, the full moon, of course, every month. But on Lake Lucerne, where he was, uh, the moon was very beautiful. And there... Uh, he had some Samaveda pundits. Samaveda is a form of Vedic chanting that uh, is um, to elongate the tones in such a way that it draws the mind deeply into those transcendental layers. And he had two pundits there who were experts in Samaveda. One of them has become a very famous guru, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. Mm. But back in those days, he was Ravi. <laughs> And um, Maharishi, in the middle of the day, and I was one of those people who every time I came back from the field, meaning teaching, mm -hmm. to where he was, I was immediately you know, expected to be in his room at night and all day and everything, just doing whatever his bidding was, which was my f absolute favorite thing, until this day came. I want the women who were on a mountaintop. There were 300 women rounding, doing asanas and pranayama and meditation many times a day to come down from that mountaintop and come and we're going to take some ferry boats and all the other people from here about a thousand people uh, who are either teachers or teacher trainees will have everybody on these ferry boats we'll lash the boats together the pundits will sing Samaveda in the full moon while we're floating on the lake and everyone was like oh, oh so great Maharishi so great and he looked at me and he said make the arrangements for the women to come down. And I said, no problem. And he said, no problem. I didn't realize until later what I was doing, setting myself up like that. I wish I'd never spoken those words, no problem. <laughs> so I called the chief lady on the mountain, Rindi. Mm. Maharishi wants you to come down. Oh, fantastic. But Tom, the problem is if you send the buses up to pick us up, the road's so narrow, so windy, they only, the Swiss only let cars go up one hour, down one hour, up one hour, and that's the up, but we can't go back down because the timing's wrong. And I said, oh, okay, I'll, no problem. I'll talk to Maharishi about it. I walked back into Maharishi's little meeting room where he was busy talking to some people. I kind of stood there, and after a while he looked up and he said, what is it? I said, um, Maharishi, you know, there's a problem. Uh, the ladies, uh, there's a bus can't go up there and come back. And he said, no, you said no problem. <laughs> and he said, those ladies should come. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, okay. So I went back to my room that had a telephone and called the constable and said, you know, hi, I'm this person. And he said, absolutely not. We cannot change the rules of the road. There's no exceptions. We're Swiss. Um, 
And, you know, no, can't do it. It can't be done. You'll just have to change your plans. So I thought, well, I went back into Maharishi's room, and he was still there talking to people and all that, and I stood in the door. And he looked up at me and he said, what is it? And I said, I talked to the authorities, and they say that, you know, they can't. And then I noticed him taking some notes. He was writing something on a piece of paper. And I thought, that's great. He's giving me a few hints. He's writing something. And then with all those people in the room, maybe 15, 20 people, he held up this piece of paper, and it had three words written on it, very large. Tom, stop talking. (laughs) And I went and got the piece of paper, and I went back to my room, and I thought, Oh, you're so mean. All these years I put in. Oh, why are you doing this? I'm leaving here. I only have very many things. I don't have to do this. Oh, you know, that was so humiliating. That's so terrible. What a shocking thing. And then I thought, okay, calm down, calm down. You know, and I was like angry and, you know, all the worst things I ever heard anybody say about him are probably true. And went through all that. And that went on for about an hour. I was tantruming around the room and things. Then I noticed the sun going down, and I thought, uh-oh, you know, the ladies are still up there. <laughs> I thought, okay, okay, meditate, meditate. And I sat down, and I was meditating. Mantra, 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 Ooh. Mantra, 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 mantra. Oh. Looked at that piece of paper. I crumpled it all up and threw it in a garbage bin. Then I uncrumpled it again and laid it all out and smoothed it out. <laughs> I was just in there, you know, like, And then I started drifting a little bit in the meditation thing. I was drifting and drifting. And then I could remember him giving a lecture. Always go to the highest first. Go to the highest first. And then I thought, oh, hang on. What? Oh, it's late. You know, I've got to, I don't know what I'm going to do. Then I thought, what was that highest first thing? Highest first, what does that mean? Go to the highest first. What does it mean? I thought, I think I know what it means. So... There was a phone book. This back in the day, they used to have these books <laughs> that had every phone number in it, including all the government, and they were big, fat things. Government. Prime Minister's office. Highest first. Called the Prime Minister's office. Hello. Explained who I was. The woman said, you're with that group that's up in Lake Lucerne. All those thousands of people with the yogi. I said, yes. Told her what I needed. I said, you know, I just thought that if there was any way, she goes, hold on for a moment. We're really happy about you being here. People are so peaceful, and you know, you really like uh, understand Switzerland, and you love it, and all that. We're very happy. Hold on for a moment. She goes away. Then she comes back, and she said, the road's open. (laughs) (laughs) So I went into Maharishi, and I said, Maharishi. He just looked at me and went, yeah, 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 no problem. And then the women all came down. They all got on the boat and everything. And mm. he never once said to me, job well done or anything. Because mm. if I'd expected that, then, you know, it would have uh, taken away from the mm. whole lesson. Mm. You learned those things. And that was perhaps an outstanding one, but not the only one. I could mm. name another 20 like that. Mm. Uh, he expected a lot of you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> 
And did you notice there were two sides to Maharishi? Yeah. There was the master, who was just sort of, I, 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 I could, I'd never met him in the physical presence, but you can imagine, you know, that etern- eternity lived inside that man. And then there was the human being. Yeah. And how did he balance those two energies? Because people describe him as, you know, being the giggling guru and just so full of joy and bliss. But other people describe him as being moody at times and he would be sort of ferocious when he needed to be and he would be kind of moody and whatnot. He balanced it by whiplashing people like me. (laughs) And I loved it, but, you know, I got used to it. But, Mm. uh, you know, that was his way. Like Mm. another story, we were waiting for an interview with David Frost. We were sitting in the green room. Uh, Frost came strolling in before this BBC televised interview, smoking a cigar. And Frost, David Frost, a very tall man. And as he came walking in, he says in this big, loud voice to my little diminutive guru who was sitting on a deerskin, he goes, uh, Maharashi, um, I think it is, hmm, let me think. Jaya Guru Deva. And he said, uh, great to see you again. You know, and all this puff smoke all around him and everything. Haven't seen you since the Beatles or something. Maharishi, I thought, oh my God, this is so terrible. Maharishi leaped to his feet. And immediately David stuck his hand out, sticking a cigar in his mouth, stuck his hand out. Maharishi said, we do it like this. And then David said, all right. And he had his cigar in his mouth and and then he said, you know, I'm going to be interviewing you and I may have to raise a few prickly points. Maharishi goes, good, 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 good. Make it very sharp, good. <laughs> and then um, we sat down again. David took off. You know, we were counting down three minutes. And I looked over at Maharishi and I said, oh, Maharishi, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that you had to experience that. He looked at me and he goes, what? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to experience all that smoke and everything. I'm Felt like I was supposed to protect you from that. Are you feeling weak? I said, um, I, I'm not feeling weak. He goes, because if you're feeling weak, you can go back to your mother. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm not feeling weak. He goes, good. And then he said, let's go. Mm. And off we went and we walked out onto the stage and he was all giggly, you know. I know how he balanced it. It was dealing with the people around him who, you know, he expected beyond perfection from us. Um, But he himself, when in full mastery mode, was beyond perfection. And there's just absolutely no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, he wasn't known for his patience. You know, sometimes people say, oh, he must have been so patient. And I'm like, gosh, you didn't know him. He wasn't patient at all. <laughs> it was extremely demanding. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and I can look back at it now and laugh, but I used to break into a cold sweat thinking about what, <laughs> what was going to come next. <laughs> but overall, mm. you know, 95% of my time with him was just absolutely divine. Mm. And 5%, you know, I was like walking on eggshells. Mm. Mm. <laughs> The truth of it is that getting you to that place of self-sufficiency is what a guru is supposed to be doing. Mm. If a guru is making you dependent for life, that guru uh, is not really worthy of the name. Mm. So tell me this then. You know, Maharishi 
directly initiated maybe 100,000 people. Indirectly, the, the movement and all the initiators probably initiated millions of people. What's the difference between, I imagine, the few who really reached the goal and the earnest seekers who didn't? I think the difference is uh, that the few always lead the many. And a river is a long process from source to ocean. Some molecules of water make it to the ocean before other molecules of water. Some molecules of water are swirling around in vortices and whirlpools and getting stuck behind rocks and things like that. But there's only one direction that it's all going. And the difference between, on a cosmic time scale, the difference between someone who gains enlightenment today and someone who gains enlightenment 10,000 lifetimes from now, on cosmic time scale is the difference between these two snaps. Mm. Did you hear that? That was the first one and the second one. Mm. 10,000 lifetimes apart. Uh, it may seem from the human perspective that somebody's way behind somebody else. Uh, from the cosmic perspective, it all happened at once. Mm. So this is our way of not getting too big ahead about I really stuck with it and somebody else didn't. Um, let's, you know, let's just see what happens as the river keeps flowing towards the ocean. Mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll be one of those who molecules that arrives in the ocean earlier than some other one or there's still plenty of little boulders and whirlpools to be caught behind. <laughs> So I wanted to read something from Maharishi. This is a quote from Maharishi. He says, The whole purpose of life is to gain enlightenment. Nothing else is significant compared to that completely natural, exalted state of consciousness. So always strive for that. Set your life around that goal. Don't get caught up in small things, and then it will be yours. I think just as a society, that doesn't seem to be on the agenda. It's not taught in schools. We don't have spiritual traditions in the West, really. Um, and very few enlightened leaders leading those spiritual traditions that exist. So what do you think needs to shift? Obviously, they, we need to have awareness that such a state exists. But I think, from what I see, people have kind of become very passive in our culture. And I know when you read all the, the epic stories and the instruction for Sishta Rummer, he says that it's individual self-effort that takes someone to that place or not. So how much individual effort is involved in the process of awakening and how much of it is divine grace? They're both kind of the same thing. It's you every, earn the divine grace through previous acts, right? It's everyone's destiny. It's mm. everyone's destiny. It's a question of how long do you spend once you realize that it's possible to have that freedom from suffering and freedom from fear and complete knowingness then any amount of time you spend wasting time doing something that's not that uh, could look as though there is uh, you know you've got a screw loose somewhere but I want to get right down to the responsibility because we can expect those who are less enlightened 
to snap out of that and start getting more enlightened. The fact is, it's not up to them. It's up to the teachers. The teachers who know how to teach need to get inspiring and really get on with it. Mm-hmm. Because we can't just keep saying, oh, you know, I'm a meditation teacher and all those people out there, they're kind of like the enemy almost, you know, the non-meditating people. And I have my little program I need to do every morning and night, otherwise I get a little headache or my vata goes out. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I... You know, and I'm not really willing to do anything to inspire them. And, you know, meanwhile, we're seeing, you know, World War III coming um, and a war that we can't really afford to have. And uh, it's, uh, it's not the responsibility of the ignorant to get on with not being ignorant. It's the responsibility of the lighthouses to get that light shining out there into the darkness. And, you know, we can't blame it on the sailors who run into cliffs because they didn't know the cliffs were there and the lighthouses weren't shining because the lighthouses were afraid of Vata getting out or something. Um, Or, you know, that's something else to do or, you know, they wanted to write a play before they turned the light on or whatever. Um, You know, it comes down to the teachers. The teachers really need to crank it up. And those who are meditators who feel as though they might be able to do a better job than the existing teachers, come and get trained. Come and get trained. And, you know, throw your hat into the ring, as they say. And, you know, make the difference because our world urgently needs to have more Maharishis. And, you know, unless the world has more Maharishis to find out about this, it can't possibly get curious enough to ask, where do I go to learn it? So we have to, instead of waiting for the world to to suddenly realize how important this is, everyone in the world needs to have an opinion about Vedic meditation. Either they hate it or they love it. And uh, until we have created that situation, we haven't done anything. Mm. You know, I don't care if half the world hates it. If half the world loves it, that's fantastic. We only need a relatively small percentage of people meditating to completely change what otherwise is definitely going to happen. Mm. It's not pretty. And uh, there's, you know, the slow global warming and there's the fast global warming. The fast global warming is thermonuclear weapons going off in the hands of individuals, not in the hands of governments. Mm -hmm. That's the fast global warming. And the slow global warming we already know all about. Um, We don't need any more of this warming. Tomorrow it's going to be nearly 30, by the way, in Sydney in the middle of July. Winter. Nearly 30. Amazing. Mm. Enjoy it while you can. So I've asked you, you know, in moments of, um, you know, one-to-one time on occasion, because it's clear when there's part of you which is on stage, which is kind of alerting us to all these things that, are, you know, are just hanging in the wings waiting for humanity if we don't correct our behavior. Mm. But also there's part of you which is kind of completely unconcerned by all that. 
It's the part of me that knows it's just a great cliffhanger of a story. <laughs> when I read uh, stories to, you know, I have eight children. Um, so I've done a lot of story reading and storytelling. And, you know, when I would love getting right to a cliffhanger part in the story and say, and that's where we'll finish for tonight. <laughs> because I know something the child doesn't know, mm. which is that it's going to be an amazing recovery from the cliffhanger by tomorrow. Mm. So what do you know that we don't know? Uh, Elevational theater. Mm. Uh, You know, that the very best stories are the ones that get your attention by making it look as though it's all going to turn into a disaster. Mm. (laughs) And so... I don't want to take the steam and fire out of my previous threats. Um, (laughs) But let me, you know, keeping to my theme of, you know, you having to get moving. um, There are two ways of the world gaining its peace and enlightenment. Mm -hmm. One way is less rough. We want that way. The other way is very rough. And it's, it involves reacting. And we want to be prospective and not have to do so much reacting. And it seems that within this tradition, the, the instruction is to awaken self, you know, to awaken to one's own being, yeah. to establish oneself in that. I think what I see a lot lacking in spiritual traditions, this and many others, is the other part of the instruction, which is the perform action part. You know, there's no activism. There's no protests in Australia. Mm. We don't get up, we don't fight those rakshasic forces and energies and, mm. and establishments. Would you be in favor of such a thing? If it made any kind of change at all, I'd be leading it. Mm. Um, you know, it's about time that we stirred some stuff up, right? Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be fun to go out and, you know, protest the fact that people aren't meditating, (laughs) marching up and down the street, protesting with great big signs and everything and demanding meditation now. Um, What do we want? Mantras. When do we want them? Now. be fantastic mm. and then everybody you know descend on Hyde Park you know 500,000 people sit down and meditate <laughs> or in front of Parliament House have a big meditation sit in we demand meditation now in the schools in the public service mm. everywhere yeah what a great idea was that your idea or my idea <laughs> I think you just cognized it I think yeah. you should do it <laughs> Well, You'd be great. And I have that. to say, because um, there's part of me, there's, there's a human part in you. Mm. And there's, you know, the spiritual part in you. And mm. the latter is much bigger than the, than the, the human aspect. Mm. That's from your point of view. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. We've still got time. We've got some questions. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that, that I've had to wrestle with just personally, is the fact that we live on this finite planet and we live on Boomy Davy. You know, this, she's a living being and you look at what's happening to her and what we're allowing to happen. To me, that breaks my heart. Mm. 
And then on the other level, you have these great saints like Ananda Mayama who says, don't you think the creator knows what she's doing? Yeah. And so at one point, it's like, don't worry. Everything's fine. It's, it's a divine play. Mm. And on the other hand, it's, well, actually, I don't really enjoy this, the way this story's going, and I really want to change this story. Yeah. And so I think spiritual people need to mobilize you know, and come together and really start to come up with solutions because it seems that the Rakshas have kind of moved into positions of, of authority and power. Yeah. And um, that, I believe, is a point that is not really highlighted enough, that we have a role to play in, in an embodied sense. It's not just go into your being, go into your spirit where everything's blissful. Um, it's you know. that followed by. Yeah, and it seems yeah. that that second part of the teaching has been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Draw back the bow and then release it. Yeah. But, you know, drawing back the bow and not releasing it, then why would you draw back a bow and not release it? Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) It doesn't. Just go to war. Yes. In a really blissful way. Yeah. Yeah. This is the war against ignorance. Yeah. And ignorance means the fact that people don't know about meditation. That's ignorance. Mm. And that ignorance needs to be destroyed. And as I said, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks. If they think good, they think bad, whatever. But they need to be thinking about it. Because it really is the most important ignored thing on earth. Mm. For what reason? Because if we don't figure out a way to offer well-known, proven scientific techniques for gaining happiness, Mm. then minorities who, when they hear the word democracy, they hear, you lose, because democracy means majority Mm. rules. Mm. Minorities uh, have access to all the same very disturbing things that elected governments have access to, notably weapons of mass destruction. They have access to them. And so we need to make happiness, the gaining of happiness, our number one priority because history's shown you give people land, they're still unhappy. You give them money, they're still unhappy. You give them status, they're still unhappy. Whatever you give them, they're still unhappy. So why don't we get on with just giving them that baseline experience of, you know, that head-expanding thing, that Mm. thing that you're just so happy inside that if the 389 bus was canceled, you wouldn't care. You're just there like, I could just stand here all night like this. It's just fine. Can you talk talk a little bit about, because a lot of it is the expansion of mind, of consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about this value here, the value of the heart, and where that fits into the model? Heart comes next. It's very interesting. Consciousness expands first. And then the next thing that wants to get in on the act is the heart. Wants to get in on the act. Because um, you begin to see that through your broadened awareness, you make a discovery. The me that I thought was locked up inside this little, you know, one foot wide and five feet high thing, uh, actually is extending into all things. Once that experience is had, you 
you start really literally being able to experience from within everything. There's a telephone post outside of Shakti's, that's my name, nickname for Limor, outside Shakti's house. You need to have a look at it. Um, it's sad about having been a beautiful eucalypt tree once in the blue gum forest in Megalong, uh, maybe Jamison. And now it's sitting there, and it was proud for a while that it had big heavy wires on it for so long. But now it's starting to kind of bend over a little bit sideways, and no one's paying any attention. And it's got a bit of a crook in it. And each morning when I look out my window as I'm saying hello to Surya Deva, the god sun, and doing my communion with sun, which comes right in through that window, uh, that telephone post is also saying, I remember, I remember my leaves. They, they took the sun, my leaves, and you know now I'm here, and I had a job, and no one's paying any attention to me, and I'm, I'm going to fail soon, and the wires are all going to fall down. And even that, you know, has been taken away from me. I had to run out there this morning and hug that telephone pole. <laughs> and look at it and say, let's see if somebody can come along here and retire you or something. The telephone pole was just like that post, was just that thing of, even if, even if I got burned, at least I'd be useful. Um, but just being here neglected like this. Mm-hmm. Sounds so bizarre, doesn't it? No. Communing with a telephone post? No. But the only thing that can actually save the world is the discovery that you are an extension of me, not just intellectually, but actually on the level of my direct, conscious, palpable, tangible experience, I'm experiencing what it's like to be you. Now, if I can have that experience, then my behavior towards another, whether another is a pole or a person or whatever it may be, my behavior towards another can only be ideal. It doesn't remove the possibility of discipline. You know, some child's having a meltdown and you can feel what it's like to be them. They may be hoping somebody's going to say to them, okay, come on now, you know. Or they may be hoping somebody's going to say to them, I know that you've got a mosquito bite on your leg and you're crying so hard you can't even talk about it. Um, But not being able to experience from within the other what it's like to be them, Mm -hmm. it turns others into its, an it. And an it is, you know, if there's these its out there, they can just be killed. You just kill the its. And then the its go away. Um, from, the point, from their point of view, that kind of thinking turns you into an it. And they just want to get rid of you as an it. There's no empathizing going on. I'm not talking about sympathizing. Sympathizing is a whole other concept, inferior to this. Empathizing means I actually experience from inside you what it is that's motivating you to experience what you're experiencing. And therefore, my behavior with reference to you is going to be based on that. And, you know, this is the world that we have to create. Uh, Speedily, I know there may be other methods beside the one that we've systematized that came out of the Veda. 
But whatever those other ways are, they should also be employed. I'm not an expert in those ways. Mm. This way really works mm. very powerfully, and it would be so simple. But no one has an opinion about it. Mm. And that's what that demonstration has to get started. <laughs> so let's drill down on this a little bit more. You know, you, One can experience themselves in another. Mm. So what is it that inhibits that? It would seem that it's essentially the way, the conditioning of the mind and samskaras. Yeah. Yeah. When you are accustomed to the idea that there is self and other, self and other, then, you know, all these things come up. Um, What's that other up to? I don't know. And other is going to take something away from me. Or maybe other has something that I want. Um, and so, you know, when there's self and other, and there's no other exploration or any education about any other possibility, then suddenly you learn to meditate. Nobody tells you it's going to remove that sense of other. You know, it's like some bicyclist who was an Olympian came to me and said, I want to learn to ride bikes faster. And I'm not interested in all this spiritual stuff. And well, I ride bikes faster if I learn to meditate. I say, yeah, sure. Come on. Bring me some flowers and fruits. We'll meet tomorrow. I'll give you a word and all that. He did that. A few weeks later, he was saying, it's amazing. I'm riding the bike faster. I go, it's not amazing. Everybody experiences that. He goes, you know something else? There's a bit more to this, isn't there? I go, maybe. He says, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm asking questions I've never asked before in my life. And I go, well, that's good, you know. But how's the bike riding going? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, now he's just an absolute thinking of coming and training to be a teacher. Um, most dedicated meditator. Absolutely dedicated. Um, and, you know, this is... But he started off wanting to ride a bike faster. Mm. The, the thing is that as we keep on, for whatever reason, we make some excuse to meditate and we justify it with something we're practicing a technique that's going to awaken the fact that it's not just that I'm connected to the ocean, I am a wave of the ocean. You know, my connection to the underlying field of being, it's one way of putting it, but it's a little not accurate. A wave is not connected to the ocean. When the ocean curves, that's a wave. That wave is the ocean, its baseline is the ocean. The curved part is the ocean. The whole thing's ocean. Your individuality actually is oceanic. And when you let that individuality quieten down a bit, the oceanic begins to appear. That oceanic is also the basis of all the other waves. And then that begins to dawn on you, which is there's that place inside me that is that place inside you from where all your thoughts and emotions and experiences are coming. First, that begins to dawn on you. And then as you keep practicing, your ability for your senses to become acute enough that they can operate at that level and your senses get to participate anywhere that that oceanic layer of you is, which is everywhere, anywhere that oceanic layer is, you can have a sensory experience of that place. 
And senses become emotion. You know, when I say, oh, you know, I feel, you know, feeling somebody, oh, nice, very nice, sweet, everything like that. Oh, God, now my emotions are getting involved. You know, um, you do that and the emotions start to get involved. And so when we have that tactile, then it's also emotional that is found to be inside of everything around us. And, you know, we get mobilized then to behave in the ways that are expressive of that reality. And you begin to find more and more, as I did, you start finding more and more that that old hackneyed question that you keep asking yourself about, oh, this is all well and good, but what about me? What about me? The idea of what me is has now become everything around you. There's no more little isolated, individualized me anymore. And so that thought of, I'm doing things for others, but I'm not doing anything for me. Well, you can't find the difference anymore. And when you can't find the difference, it's all you. Uh, You know, what about me means what about 7.3 billion people on the face of a giant goddess that's spinning around a little yellow sun somewhere in a galaxy? What that's me. What about me? Wow, that's a well big. Yeah, okay, me's me's pretty good. That's the answer. Me is pretty good. Don't you want to have a little break and go off to you know hang out in Ubud or something? Are there people there who haven't heard about meditation yet? Sure, I'll go. <laughs> I mean, I someone old you know I'm a snowboarder as you know, and um, I love that just coursing down the mountains on that. You know, frozen wave. I used to be a surfer, and so snowboarding is the, you know, no sharks, there's no giant sets of waves that come, no more paddling. You just sit in a chair and you jump out of the chair, you're already standing up. Um, And, you know, people will invite me, you know, come and snowboard with us in in France, Courchevel. I go, okay. I go there, sitting in the chair, going up the mountain for half an hour. You know, people look over at me and they go, what's that smell? It smells so good. No, that's me. Go, is that like you or is it a cologne that you're wearing? I go, no, it's me. <laughs> Would you like to smell like this? I just can't help myself. <laughs> By the time I'm at the top of the lift, they're all memorizing my email address. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to write things when you have those gloves on and things. You know? but it's very easy to memorize it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sure enough, emails, you know, I'd love to find out more about that. Remember we rode in a chairlift together out the way up the mountain in Courchevel and all that. I just can't help myself. Um, can we, um, ah. <laughs> you touched on a couple of things and I thought it'd be very, um, very enjoyable to explore them a little bit. Mm. One is that you've got eight kids. Mm. That's a lot. <laughs> Did they sneak past the goalie or was that a conscious So thing? far, yeah. eight. So far, eight. Did they what? <laughs> You're in Australia, mate. I was just, you know. Um, so... 
I said, did they sneak past the goalie? <laughs> and, well, I, uh, I know how they got there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And what I would love to explore is the following, because we talk about conscious conception, yeah. you know, and some people think, you know, there's, you know, accidental children, and then I know there's accidental parents, and um, I'd like for you, you to kind of let us in on what the process is when you um, kind of uh, hear the when call. When I'm conceiving. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the process, when you hear the call of the, a child, when you hear the call of the soul. I never heard anything like that. No? Um, I just heard the call of the joy of the moment. And uh, if there's some child calling as well, you know, it was lost in everything else that was going on. <laughs> and uh, if they were all here, they'd all be laughing their heads off, but not one of them was planned. Uh, nobody ever planned anything, um, and not one of them ever. Contrary to that, what's that? I've heard you say things contrary to that. I know. Once they have come out, and all of that excitement that conceived them is gone, and you know they've come out, it starts to become very, very clear that they planned, you know, an arrival. It's very clear to me, and also they start talking about it too. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all very bossy children, you know. The children that get born to meditators are always bossy. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. It's not because meditators are just softies. Um, it's because to get born to someone who has the capacity, whether you ask as a child or not, has the capacity to arrange for you to be initiated into meditation. And be on the supreme knowledge highest path. To have that kind of spiritual merit, we use the word punya in Sanskrit, P-U-N-Y-A, punya. Spiritual credit rating. Mm. Spiritual merit. It's extraordinary spiritual merit when you consider more than 10,000 babies are being born every five minutes on the earth. More than. 216,000 a day. Yeah. India is producing one Australia each year. Mm-hmm. And so then to, uh, to, to merit a birth, which is a very scarce birth today, where you land in a family that that family, whether you ask them or not, are going to expose you to the highest possible spiritual knowledge mm-hmm. uh, is a very rare birth who gets that only those with the highest spiritual merit get to line up for that birth and it's so clear you know when they do get born they come out and they start saying no not there mommy over there no dad dada that dada that you listening dada that stop looking at your phone that you know i want this i want that no not that this not that way this way little bossy boots Mm. because that's how they were when they were in that heightened consciousness state almost enlightened not quite and then the body died and when you see these magnificent children who come out of the meditating people uh, yeah they're a little bossy for a few years and then they start to really 
come of their come into their own and they become magnificent. It doesn't mean they don't need guidance. They do. You know, they do need guidance. Uh, and you, you, you. Why is that? Why is it that when we're born, mm. all that we've acquired, all that we've learned, all of that wisdom, mm. seems to be suppressed? It's, is uh, it the age that we're in? The details, the details of what you knew in that high consciousness state, are not relevant in this new body. But the state of consciousness itself is relevant, and it comes forward with you. So the consciousness state that's capable of discovering all of the new relevant details, relevant to this life, relevant to this body, this placement, this geographic setting, and all of that, that state of consciousness comes forward. But it's like, think of an iPhone, and you want to give it to a friend. I mean, it's a year-old iPhone, and maybe you want to go and get the new one. So you give it to a friend. It has all that capability, you know, whatever it is, 14 gigs or whatever. But you want to erase all the details, like your photos and, you know, all that stuff, your text messages and everything. Then you hand it over. But you're not handing over a, an iPhone that has no capacity. It's got all the fantastic capacity in it. But passing it on to somebody else, the information it had in it when it was over here is not going to be useful to them or it might be distracting to them. So when we come from one life into the next, the whole thing gets erased. Are there some people that come from life to life and they're not a, their information hasn't been erased? A little bit of it may still be there. But only that information which is relevant to them getting on with what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, if you have all that information about, you know, I was a Mongol or something like that, riding around on a horse and drinking blood and chopping heads off or whatever I was doing, and then I got to a monastery in Tibet and I mm -hmm. became a Buddhist and all that, one could spend so much time sitting around reviewing that and then the life before that and the life before that and the life before that too much precious time of this life is taken up um, thinking about all that and really this life needs to be get on, we need to get on with living it and mm -hmm. going into that consciousness state when we gain cosmic consciousness there's a moment and it's only a moment where you can see everything going back all the way back in your generations of your own history. Once that's satisfied, you have that moment, it's forgotten. Buddha, when he had that moment, he, in that moment, pounced on it and he caused all of his previous incarnations to become Buddhas. <laughs> and so then there's a group of stories called Jataka, Jataka tales from India. You know, Buddha was an Indian. People have him depicted as all kinds of other things, but he was actually Indian, an Indian aristocrat. And the Jataka tales are in Sanskrit, but they've been translated beautifully into English, and they're all the tales of the Buddha-like dog, the Buddha-like horse, the Buddha-like cow, the Buddha-like tree, the Buddha-like, all these things. Mm -hmm. Once he attained that state, he went back up the river of his own consciousness flow, and in that moment, brought all of them into Buddhahood and changed the history of his own incarnations. Prior to his moment of nirvana, that wasn't 
the case. At the moment of nirvana, then everything became buddhic all the way back. So, uh, and they're fun tales to read to kids too, for those of you who have kids. Or I'm tempted to ask you what would happen to the dogs, but that would be three hours. Yeah. So we won't go there. <laughs> so you talked about the experience of cosmic consciousness. Yeah. Can we go one step further in the experience of God consciousness? Cosmic consciousness gives rise to a state that makes cosmic consciousness look like mere cosmic consciousness. And it's a state where uh, the senses, five senses have become so acute that you discover that everything is animate. It's not that things become animate. They always were, but you were ignoring it. Everything is sentient. Everything is animate. Everything has personality. Everything has character. Everything means absolutely everything. And then combinations of things like motes of dust dancing in that shaft of sun in your room, which once upon a time, you didn't even know they were there because you were too busy texting or you were too busy getting your shirt straight. or but And there was a shaft of light coming into your room with these motes of dust dancing in it, just for your amusement, performing for you. Um, individually, each one of them can perform. As a group, they perform the most amazing ballet. And yet, the fact that the Uber is coming is too important. And I, I don't. Someone said, did you see the shaft of light? You go, what shaft? What are you talking about? Shaft of light, what? It was right there in your room. Right there in your room. What is that? It's a celestial event going on. And those celestial events surround you and are inside of you and outside of you nonstop. But because we don't have the broad base of consciousness, because that's given us a sense of priorities that is not inclusive of that which is celestial, and because we don't have the acuity of Perception, taste, touch, smell, sight, and sound is not acute enough. We miss the show. Now, the performers performing that show for an audience that's asleep. They're up here on the stage doing a beautiful ballet and all that, and everybody's asleep. The performance gets a little lackluster. Then one of the performers notices somebody in aisle three, row four, has become awake and is looking with wide eyes at the performance. Psst, somebody's awake. You know, then suddenly every, the, all the performers see it and they really will ramp up the performance because somebody's watching, somebody's appreciating. Everyone else is still asleep. There's somebody watching. And that layer of creation that responds and reciprocates attention, when attention's given to it, it reciprocates by giving attention to the knower of that. And this reciprocal relationship begins. God consciousness has started. And a phenomenon begins that's irreversible. If you don't like the sound of this, you need to stop meditating right away. Because uh, it's going to come if you keep practicing meditation. A, a thing comes which is irreversible, which is 
you begin to realize that you are, as a molecule, an important one, but a molecule nonetheless, in an ocean of beings, and world after world after world of beings. And, you know, um, people will sometimes say to me if I describe that, and if they feel like they're cheeky enough to ask, they say, are you experiencing that right now? What do you think, I'm just making this up? <laughs> of course I'm experiencing it right now. <laughs> you know, of course. What's it like? Well, you know, it's like somebody who can't see color asking someone to tell them what color's like. Uh, you, can't, you can't describe it. You can try, but... You can only use comparisons to what they're already experiencing, and it's way beyond what they're experiencing. You're able to see, taste, touch, smell, hear, all those beings of that, whose job it is to disintegrate things. If you saw a being like that, and you were not established in that deep inner self, it would traumatize you. People who take ayahuasca get this all the time. Mm. Ayahuasca goes in, all the portals open, the baseline consciousness state hasn't been gained yet, the sensory portals are open, and they see the world of rakshas, that's the destruction operators, or the maintenance operators, or the creation operators. They don't have a context in which to see that. And you know, ayahuasca is famous for making people vomit, but the fact is, the natives who take it don't vomit. Only the people who are non-natives vomit. Why is that? The vomiting and the diarrhea and the, all those reactions, they're caused by stress. People take it, their portal's all open, but they don't have a context in which to understand that celestial vision. And they get incredibly stressed. It's a very, very stressful. If you think that you know, being beeped at by somebody in traffic in Sydney is stressful, if you could see what is underneath this apparent layer, it's inside this layer, but it's not on the gross surface level. And if you didn't have that grounding in the state of being, the knowledge of that would make you so freaked out and stressed because it could be totally overwhelming. That's why cosmic consciousness has to come first. It grounds you in being and then the senses of perception can begin, begin opening up mm -hmm. and you have a context mm -hmm. and you've got the capacity to put it all into perspective. Do you but think there's a place for those medicines you were just describing, the plant medicines or the ayahuasca? Oh, there's a place for everything. All the plants are beautiful and delicious and wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, are we actually uh, misusing the plant? You know, these plants... All plants have a place, you know. Ayurveda says this, you know. All plants have a place, but if you use them incorrectly, you know, the opium poppy, beautiful little poppy, it's got things in it that will give you euphoria. But if you don't know in what context to take that or who or where or when, then you've got a heroin addict. Um, Do you think those things can accelerate a spiritual process? They can. They can, but only if there's a baseline of pure consciousness already. If that baseline's not there, 
and they overwhelm the person who's experiencing it, they can slow down the spiritual process because they make the person stressed. So they, get, they get stressed by what they experience. I think some meditators in the room just had the thought that mm. then it would be beneficial for them, having established a meditation practice, yeah. to imbibe such substances. There's no harm as long as you stop. That means, you know, if you feel like you want to do something like that, just to prove or disprove what I'm saying, go ahead. Swim at your own risk. Um, however, the shamans in the Amazon, where that particular kind of vine, ayahuasca, grows, when you sit down with a genuine shaman there in situ and talk to them, these are enlightened people. And they may not be gurus. And they don't fully know how juvenile the state of being is and somebody who comes you know trekking in there with a little pink face and their little backpack uh, saying you know can I have some of the vine Um, and you know how they're going to go back to Los Angeles and have vine parties you know with their you know with their mates and you know this is really cool and it's just in that context it's just you know the latest way to get stoned really but you know be sure you bring a bucket um, <laughs> you know, um, getting high and getting stoned is not what spiritual experience is. It's the, uh, it's the unfolding of knowledge. And I have no doubt that there are great masters of very high degree in the Himalaya who use the Soma plant. Mm to enhance their consciousness state. There are records of that. Yeah, Gurudev um, mentions it yeah. in a couple of lectures. Yeah. Um, but you don't take it to L.A. to you know, somebody's living room in West Hollywood and mm. you know, after watching Game of Thrones, um, <laughs> we're going to toss back a bit of you know, um, psychoactive, powerful vine from the jungle. Um, <laughs> It's all about context. Mm. And context is a much deeper and richer topic than most Westerners have any patience for. Mm. Uh, So I'd say, you know, yeah, meditate 20 years or something. And uh, and then if you want to make decisions about that, you'll be making an informed one. Mm. But without establishing yourself in being, uh, just coming up with that stuff by yourself, it's um, it's risky. It could produce some good effect. It might not. It might cause you. It might be a setback to you. Mm. Yeah. Well, that wasn't on my list of questions tonight. Oh well, was... <laughs> you brought it up. That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, okay. So. Um, is that empathy thing going on? Yeah. I know what it's like to be you. <laughs> What are you saying? <laughs> um, so the other thing I wanted to explore is just when one becomes a master, what becomes of their humanity? It becomes what? Of their humanity, their, 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 their human side. Does that become like a plaything, one's personality? It's not really a plaything. Uh, mastery has to be something that others can relate to. If others, if you become so masterful, so pure, that no one can relate to you anymore, 
they see a person come in and they think, I can never be like that. I didn't have that good fortune. I didn't have all those experiences. I've got no hope. And so we have a principle, the principle of Lesha Vidya. Vidya, knowledge. Avidya, not knowledge, ignorance. Lesha, faint, remains like a patina. Lesha Vidya, the faint remains of ignorance. In our progress toward the highest enlightenment, there's a point where we have to put the brakes on and allow some faint remains of ignorance to remain there in the individual status and structure, personality, humanity, because otherwise we become unrelatable. And so one makes a choice about which of those tendencies one would like to have celebrated. And they're celebrated because if any one of those ignorance qualities was there thick, then it would be disgusting. Nobody would relate to They wouldn't like that. But in very, very, very faint, it's just charming and lovable. There's this enlightened person who just loves to eat sale biscuits <laughs> and sultana bran. Um, and, you know, so cute, you know, unity consciousness and dairy farmer's cream with sultana bran. What? You know, do they know what's on the ingredients? They're going, yeah, read the box. It tells you all the wonderful things it does for you. And everyone is expecting that person to be, you know, like sprouts and green juice. Um, and it's kind of weird that they're not. But it's sort of lovable, too, you know. <laughs> I have to be, be sure I get the master's sultana bran. <laughs> and, um, and it's got to be Kellogg's, too. Um, none, not, not the organic one, the Kellogg's one. <laughs> so that the... The fact that that faintly perplexes somebody, but then 99% of the other time they're doing everything Ayurvedic and you know, talking about high consciousness states and in perfect health and all of that. There's this funny little Sultana brand thing. You know, that's the Lesha Vidya. And someone who's a great master knows how to take those faint, 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 faint remains of ignorance. Not egregious levels of ignorance, but faint and just culture them slightly so as not to lose relatability. Um, you know, if somebody was some great big, you know, oh, oh, you know, just guzzling down cream and sultana bran all day <laughs> and not really contributing to the world in any way and, you know, behaving disgustingly and all of that, like Jabba the Hutt sort of character, nobody would be attracted to that. And presumably you would lose your anchor to this, yeah. to this dimension, exactly. right? Exactly. So, so the, you if know, I could the, just make an observation, the, like, because, mm. you, you know, students grow, teachers grow, and just physically I've noticed that when I first came to you, mm. you were suit and tie guy. Yeah. And then, you know, everything was very formal. Yeah. And then you went to L.A. and then back to Flagstaff, and then you were kind of Mr. Cash. Yeah, yeah. And then slowly, you know, all these sort of Vedic things began creeping in, the Rudraksha beads, mm. you know, mm. the long beard, mm. you know, the sandals, mm. and, you know, that fragrance you emanate. And, and tonight you seem to have taken it, you know, to a whole new level mm. where you're 
wearing traditional robes, and you know you're going more by somebody. (laughs) I'm going to blame it on somebody. (laughs) And you go more by your Vedic name than you know your, I guess, Anglo-Saxon name. Mm. So tell us about that. I was always told by Maharishi, my teacher, and anybody who was trained by him was told the same thing. I'm here to multiply myself. He started a university called Maharishi International University. And the reason he called it that was because of the initial capitals, M-I-U. M, Maharishi, I and you. I and you become M, Maharishi. So that was why he called it that, M-I-U. Also a question. Yeah. And you are to all become Maharishis. In his very opening up of his worldwide movement, he said, I'm going to multiply myself. The mission was multiply myself. If we are not obedient to that mission, how much humility and obedience do we have to that master who says, you have to be a Maharishi? And so once I had begun experimenting with allowing that, I recalled that people were sitting around him one day and it was a very casual setting, but they were saying, you know, what about these spiritual names that people have? And my ears perked up, you know, because he wasn't born Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. That was a title. Um, he, he has a family name. So then, you know, he looked like he was in that mood where you could ask him things. And I said, what would mine be? And he said, in the spirit of Vyasa, Vyasa Anand. Anand means bliss, but it also means in the spirit of whatever you say before it. So I thought, Vyasa Anand, all right. Maharishi, Vyasanand. You know, no one called him Maharishi. For several years into his teaching, people started calling him Maharishi, and he started answering to it. His name prior to Maharishi was Balbramchari Mahesh. And before that, um, it was Mahesh Prasad Varma, his family name. But then everyone just started calling him by his title, not the Maharishi, but Maharishi. So I allowed that, and that started to grow a little bit. And then about three years ago, one of my friends in Rishikesh, I have a retreat every year in Rishikesh. One of my friends in Rishikesh said to me, there's a Swami that wants to meet you. I said, you know, Krishna, there's all these Swamis. His name's Krishna. Krishna, all these Swamis, everything. I don't go and meet these people. You know, I'm a master in my own right and I represent a tradition and it's fine that somebody wants to meet me, but he goes, but this is a very big, important Swami. And I go, India is filled with big, important Swamis. No, I'm not going to go next year. Tom, there's this Swami I was telling you. I go, I keep telling me, but I'm not going. Third year, which was last January. Tom, the Shankaracharya wants to see you. And I said, Shankaracharya? Shankaracharya is the king of the yogis. I knew the Shankaracharya already. I'd gone and interviewed him three years before that, discussed some things with him. He knew me. And I said, he wants to see me? He goes, no, no, he's gone into silence now, and he's elected his successor. And I said, oh, there's a new Shankaracharya. He goes, Tom, it's the Swami who's been wanting to see you all these years. He became Shankaracharya three years ago. I said, I didn't know that. He said, well, I said, okay, let's go right now. Off we went. And there I met the Shankaracharya. And uh, he's a young man. He's turning 40 on the 1st of January. Um, 
his uh, he has um, about 400 million disciples um, when I asked him who was coming to his birthday he said it'll be small about half a million people will come um, he said of course there's the VVIPs that's you and um, he and I we just the moment I saw him uh, he looked at me and he began speaking in Sanskrit and he was asking me what was my guru tradition when I said Maharishi's master Brahmananda Saraswati he goes that's my grandfather meaning spiritual grandfather and he said I have a spiritual grandfather Gurudev Swami Brahmananda Saraswati and then I have two fathers Swami Shantanand Saraswati first Shankaracharya after Gurudev Shankaracharya is a position that gets handed down to disciples. And then Vasudevanand Saraswati, that was the one whom I knew, who was the previous Shankaracharya. And he goes, three years ago he told me, and you were there. He said, you were there interviewing him. I said, I didn't know you were there. He goes, no, no, I was hiding behind a curtain, looking at you. And the next day, my master said to me, he said, you're now going to be Shankaracharya. He shaved off all of his hair, shaved off his beard, went off to the Himalayas. He said, I begged him, don't make me do this. It's the most, the highest authority position in the entire Vedic world is Shankaracharya. We could say it's akin to being the Pope, but it's more than that, actually. It's, um, you know, the Pope's there in the Vatican and there are Catholics all over the world. In India, Shankaracharya is universally regarded by at least a billion people. Anyway, as the ultimate authority. And long story short, uh, he said, right now we have to go open the Kumbh Mela. Kumbh Mela is a big spiritual fair that is attended by 50 million plus people. And tonight I'm meeting the Prime Minister. He's made me the secretaries of all the spiritual festivals of India. And I'm going to tell him about you. He said, my job is, and this was, I knew him for 15 minutes at this point, my job is to make your teaching world famous. Then he called out to one of his devotees, and they brought this, and he said, I'm inducting you into the order of Saraswati. And I said, Maharaji, Maha means great, Raj means king, Ji means dear. Maharaji, great king. Um, you know I'm a householder, not a celibate monk, I'm... I have relationships and all that. He goes, yes, 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 I know. I said, but the Saraswati orders, swamis, and you know, only celibates are in that. He goes, no, that's not right. Vyasa, your name is Vyasa. And Vyasa, 5,000 years ago, great rishi of our tradition, after whom you were named, was a householder. And I said, aren't people going to feel a little disturbed? He said, I'm the Shankaracharya. You're in the Saraswati order, and then a yagya was performed, and it was formal um, induction into that order. You're the first non-Indian. The, the first non-Indian in five thousand years. Five thousand years ago, there was an, there was no. He was Indian, Vyasa. The first in five thousand years, non-celibate, you know, householder person. And so then he, we went. We had the press conference. There were sixty million Indians watching on television. Um, 
and he opened the Kumbh Mela and then said, Now my brother, Swami Maharishi Vyasanand Saraswati is going to address you. I had no warning. <laughs> and then all the cameras turned on me and the microphones came. I said a few things in my limited Hindi, a few things in English, and I sung a little thing in Sanskrit. And all the pundits that surround this man, the pundits are all the all of the authorities in all various forms of the Veda, the six systems of Indian philosophy, they all move around him in a group. And uh, he's a magnificent looking man. He's about six foot two, very unusual for an Indian. And he stands on the same wooden sandals with a toe peg in them that are that high off the ground that Gurudev himself wore, which Gurudev received from his master. They're the Shankaracharya sandals. So when he stands on those, he looks like he's about 6'5 or something, or 6'6". Six, six. Very tall man. And he, in front of all the cameras, jumped up from his seat and hugged me. And then, you know, he just said, you're my brother now. Mm-hmm. And so a few days ago, and he's been in communication with me all the time, he gives, he's given a satellite phone by the Prime Minister of India. And... <laughs> It's a great big brick with an antenna, you know. It looks like a kind of 1980 attempt at a cell phone. He called me from his satellite phone and um, said to me in Hindi-English mix, Where are you? I said, I'm in Australia. What are you doing for Guru Purnima? I said, I've got, you know, a hundred and something people coming. He said, there'll be Guru Puja and all that? I said, yes. And he said... "Um, You'll wear your Shankaracharya dhoti. And I said, oh, all right. And then what else? And I said, there's a meeting. I'm being interviewed uh, by one of my colleagues, and there'll be hundreds of people there. He goes, you'll wear your Shankaracharya dhoti and bring my blessings to all of them. Bring my blessings to all of them. They're all going to become Chakravarti. Chakravarti means the ruler of their circle. They're all going to become Chakravarti. Tell them, Chakravarti. And I said, uh, good. He said, lots of photos. <laughs> he wants to see that I wore it. <laughs> lots of photos. I said, okay, good. We'll get some photos to you. Very good. Jay Gurudev. Any question? No question. Jay Gurudev, you coming to my birthday? Yes, I'm coming to your birthday. Very good. Come a few days early. I will. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> he um, has now taken over and has said that Vedic meditation now is under the umbrella of the Shankaracharya and he said you know uh, whenever your teachers come with you to India I want to meet all of them individually one at a time and you know when you train people I want to meet all of them. Meet them at the beginning of the training. I'll meet them at the end of the training. And he said, you'll give them their tests and they'll graduate and then I'll test them. So our last initiator training course, we're sweating bullets because I'd graduated them as initiators. And on our final day of training, they were going to go see the king of the yogis who was going to spend a whole day testing them. We were there for 18 hours. To see a Shankaracharya, if you ever get to see them for five minutes, if you're the prime minister, you might see him for 15 minutes. 
He spent 18 hours with our group. It was just absolutely magic, and I can't wait for all of you to meet him. I said to him, you know, uh, maybe you could come outside of India. He said, outside of India can come to India. <laughs> and then I said, you know, but like, you know, maybe like Australia and U.S., things like that. He goes, nothing is outside of India. There's nothing outside. That's also India. And I said, well, all right. And he said, that, that place, that part of India, that USA thing, that Australia thing, that can come here to the heart of India. I'll be here. I'll be here. Mm. So he wants to meet all of you. He's used to large numbers, by the way. So I just wanted to um, end with just some short questions. Short, sharp questions. Mm. <laughs> Not too prickly. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what's what's your favorite book the Mahabharata as translated by Ramesh Menon mm-hmm. your favorite Vedic fable the story of the seagull tell us once upon a time there was a seagull who laid her eggs down by the shore and the waves came and washed the eggs away and when her husband seagull came home uh, she said, our children are gone. And he said, don't worry about anything. I'll take care of it. He trots down to the ocean, hopping like a little seagull. Ocean, wife tells me that you washed the eggs away. Now, I understand mistakes can be made. However, my wife's very upset. We're going to go to sleep now for the night. Tomorrow when I come down here, I expect to see the eggs back. I don't want problems. You don't want problems. <laughs> Hops back, says to the wife, we go to sleep now. She goes, what about the eggs? All right, I'm taking care of it. Hops down, dawn, no eggs. Ocean. I gave you 24 hours notice and no eggs are here. So now begins the reprisal. I have to begin drying you out. And he trotted down, put his beak in the water and went back up and threw the water on the shore and back to the water and threw the water on the beach and threw the... Another couple of seagulls come sailing by saying, has he got some chips down there or something? What's he, what's he doing? And the seagulls, they all want to know what the other one's doing. Hey, what's happening? He tells them, we're joining in. 50, 60 seagulls, more seagulls, more seagulls. And then the pigeons come and usually the competitors of the seagulls and they hop in, they go, what's happening down here? It's a private fight or can anyone join? They tell them, they join. More birds, more birds, more birds until millions of birds are on the beach. They're all putting their beaks in the water and throwing it on the sand and putting their beaks and throwing it on the sand, drying out the ocean. Ocean needs to bring back the eggs and all that. Eventually, the word gets off to Garuda. Garuda's king of the birds. He's known for being the mount of the maintenance operator, Vishnu. And his wings are so huge and big that if he decided to, he could sit on the ocean and the whole thing would just be sucked up into his wings. And his followers come and say, there's some big disruption happening. All these birds down there, they're all doing a thing and it's about these eggs and all that. He goes to Varuna, personified ocean, Varuna. Now, there's this egg thing. Now, you and I have bigger things to talk about, Varuna, 
got bigger things to think about and talk about. But uh, before we get to that, because we're great friends, you know, it'd be good to get those eggs back because I've got some upset subjects. Is there something you can do about that? Sure enough, eggs come rolling up onto the sand. And the lesson is when you know that something's right, just don't wait. You just go ahead. And when you go ahead, you get massive support of nature. Massive support. Make the assumption that you're going to get the support. You make the assumption. Demand it. Demand the support of nature. But you have to put yourself in a position where you're performing the action. You're performing the action. And it may appear in some way to be futile. Beak in the water, water on the sand. Beak in the water, water on the sand. But actually, nature is watching and... If what you're doing is for a good cause, nature will come and support. The idea of supportive nature, how wonderful it is to be able to see the supportive nature come. You know, supportive nature, you just do, you teach a simple thing, a simple methodology, a simple technique, and nature just rushes in and supports you in every way. People always say to me, you know, oh, I'm thinking of having children. I don't know about if I should have them or not have them. And, you know, I'm a this or that. And I go, do you know who you're talking to? You're going to ask me whether you should, <laughs> whether you should have children? Um, oh, but it's so hard. There's so many responsibilities. And I go, do you actually even know what you're talking about? You know, I have them. You don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should be asking me if it's hard. You should be asking me if. There are all these you know, dreaded responsibilities. Who is going to lead the next generation? You're going to just abandon the next generation and say, I can't bring a child into here, I'm out of here. I'm just going to you know, go to movies and things while I can before ISIS gets here. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, uh, <laughs> drink lots of lattes and swim at Bronte. Um, <laughs> And, I, you know, I don't want to have any children because, you know, they're going to end up in that whatever comes after me. This is just abandoning the next generation. And, you know, if you're going to have children, raise them to be leaders of the next generation. Uh, if you're not planning to do that, be a celibate. Um, but, you know, do whatever you do in a very thoroughgoing way. <laughs> So, if you were to depart from this world and encounter a soul about to enter it, what bit of advice would you give them? Relax and enjoy. (laughs) What's the greatest piece of advice you have for people in this room wanting to fast-track their evolution? Do absolutely anything that you have to do to become a teacher of Vedic meditation. Whatever it takes. You know, it should be in the plan. It should be in the plan. Um, it's the most fantastic experience you can possibly have. And if you don't have a plan for it or a conception for it, get one. If you yourself can't do it, sponsor somebody. You know, you can send a surrogate over there. Um, but that's got to be in the plan because for your own self, your own knowledge, your own capability, your own life, Um, And then radiating from that, 
the lives of hundreds who are just waiting to be able to thank you for teaching them to meditate. My favorite Maharishi quote is that the purpose of life is the expansion of happiness. My favorite quote. Mm. On that note, I think we have to let all these people go. Yeah. And thanks for coming. It's a real pleasure. Jay Guru Day. Jay Gurudev. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I'll spend a moment talking about how you can make your individual contribution to the group effort of these podcasts. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.